This episode of the Filmmaker Mixer podcast is sponsored by Reed's Cleaners in Austin, Texas. We launder everything but money. This episode is also sponsored by Piers Henry Headshots, shining the spotlight on you. Welcome to the Filmmaker Mixer podcast. My name is Andrew, and I'm joined alongside my co-host, Jeff, as always. Today, we have on a very exciting guest. That is Star Long. Star talks about moving from a game tester to a game designer and game developer and his brand new venture, which he just launched at South by Southwest. Hello, everybody. This is the Filmmaker Mixer podcast, and today we are chatting with Star Long. Star is a game developer, a longtime collaborator with Richard Garriott, at the company's Origin Systems, Destination Games, and Portalarium. Star was the original director of the multiplayer game Ultima Online. He spent time as an executive producer at the Walt Disney Company, where he created and managed several educational games and apps for Club Penguin and the Disney Connected Learning Platform. He was listed as one of the top 20 most influential people in the massively multiplayer online game industry, and he is currently launching a new venture, which he just premiered at South by Southwest. So, Star, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So, Star, you know, I have a lot of family in Louisiana, and I was looking at your Wikipedia page, and you actually grew up in Baton Rouge. So, you know, I'm curious, growing up there, how you got interested in theater at an early age, and, and what got you curious about the entertainment industry and the gaming industry? Well, that's a great question. You know, I would I would say that I grew up, let's see, well, first of all, I think my name probably has a clue, because it is my real name, and I was born in 1970, so you can imagine <laughs> uh, the creative crowd my parents were hanging out in. So I'm sure that had some influence. And so your parents were very creative too then. Yeah. So my father was an art and antiques dealer and an artist. Like he made, uh, paint, he painted and made uh, sculptures. And then my mother was a research librarian. And they, we, they hung around with a very creative, eclectic group of people. In high school, I was big into theater. Uh, I was into drama and dance and, you know, had, you know, was in a lot of plays and was really into performance and entertaining people. Uh, and, you know, just a general ham, I would say. <laughs> and when, and so when I decided to go to college, that's when I decided to get a degree in as well. But I was also always interested in games and we as a family always played games and I loved technology, so I loved video games, and I loved computers, and I took computer programming. But my degree was actually in theater. Uh, I'm still actually really good friends with like my high school drama teacher. Um, whenever she comes in Austin, we hang out, and whenever I'm in Baton Rouge, I would see still see her. And so I would say, you know, my interest in theater came from growing up in a creative household, being around very uh, extravagant, creative people, and then being in high school drama. That was kind of the beginning of it. And where did, you, uh, where did you go to school? My high school was a magnet high school, Baton Rouge high school magnet and like an arts and college prep curriculum. And then college, I went to Louisiana State University and got a degree in theater. So you've been a longtime collaborator, collaborator with uh, Richard Garriott, also known as Lord British. How did that collaboration start? Well, you, you might wonder, 
where do you get to video games from theater? I had moved to Austin after graduating and was doing uh, like lighting and set and set work and, you know, production management type stuff in theaters around town. And anybody who has worked in live theater and tried to make a living out of it will tell you uh, those don't aren't can't put them in the same sentence together. There was an ad in the paper that said video game testers wanted. And I, my friends and I joked that this couldn't be a real job. <laughs> no one like, no, like, and what we, our fantasy conjecture was that, oh, well, I'll show up and it'll be like, like one of those medical test places is like, there's this really infamous company here in Austin called Formico. Which, oh yeah. If you know any of like Robert Rodriguez history, that's how he like financed Desperado was like doing tests of Formico. And so we thought it would be something like that where I would show up and there would be a guy with like a, a little clipboard and he would be in a lab coat and he would say, okay, well, surprise, you know, this is really like a, we're trying to find out what kind of person would think this was a real job. <laughs> and can you, can you answer a few questions <laughs> so we can assess your mental stability? Um, but, but it turns out it was a real job and it was at Origin Systems who had made games that I had played like Ultima and Wing Commander because the ad didn't say at Origin Systems. It really just said video game testers wanted it. And I showed up and it was a real job. And at the time, my life plan had been, well, get an undergraduate degree, go like take a bit, like take a year off, go get some you know, life experience and then go back and get my graduate degree. Well, I went and got this video game testers job and they were also kind of surprised like, oh, you have a college degree. You're, you're a bit overqualified, but sure. I got the job and I was like, in luck. I was like, oh my God, like video games. This is like my calling. I love games. I love entertaining people. Like it's technology. I'm, I have to do this for the rest of my life. Like within like a few weeks. And so like after about a month, I, I called my parents and, and I, I said, I have good news. Like you don't have to pay for graduate school. Like I'm, I'm like gonna, I've found my new like career. I'm gonna, I'm gonna like, I'm gonna make video games. And they're like, what, you have a job making video games? And I'm like, well, not exactly. Like I'm, I'm testing them, but I'm gonna get there. And uh, so, yeah, so that, so then from there, uh, so I was in the testing department for a few years and I became infamous for not just writing up the bugs, but also making very elaborate detailed uh, suggestions about how the game can be improved, how we can make it better, um, asking tons of questions of the game designers of like, well, how did you do this? How does it, how is the game made? And then also making lots of suggestions about how they can improve their project management because like, like this is, you know, 1992 and, or, or you know, early nineties and game development at that time was still like a lot of like, let's just work as hard as we can until it's done. And there were like literally bunk beds at the office. So people would just work, fall asleep and get up and keep working. So I was like, you know, there are project management books we could be using and studying to like do this and like scheduling. And so they were like, sort of like, well, put your money where your mouth is. 
and well, and at the same time, Richard Garriott had these really like crazy, like locally famous haunted houses that he would put on at his house. I remember those. Yeah. Yeah. And people would like line up for like weeks ahead of time to go through this thing because it was like a 90 minute, insanely immersive, like interactive storytelling experience where we would have like the local lighting company, like would lend us all their like latest high tech gear. The local fire department would lend us like a oil field fire simulator so we could shoot like 30 foot fireballs into the air. So at his house and in his yard, we would be building these like Universal Studios level of like experiences for just, you know, your average Austin haunted house goer. And, and so I was, I started doing those with the team and Richard was like, oh, well, you're constantly annoying us with like suggestions of how we can make it better. Uh, I can see that you're also like creative because of the work you're doing with us and on now stuff. So come give development a try. And so that's how I, that's the long answer to, well, how did I get from theater to working with Richard Gere? So, so your advice to uh, upcoming gamers is to annoy your, uh, annoy people to get, to get ahead. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's also the version of, you know, start doing the job you want. Sure, right? sure. So that was the thing I started doing is like, you know, if I want to become a game maker, I have to start learning that and start getting all of that information and start making suggestions, whether they're right or wrong, about how to make the games better. Did, did you, so, were you involved in the designs for the haunted house as well? Uh, I was on the lighting and special effects teams. So uh, I wasn't designing the experience, but I was helping. Uh, like they would say, well, this is where, uh, so me and this guy, Steve Hemphill, we would do, uh, the lighting and special effects. So the fog and the, you know, the lights and the strobes and, um, help us help the teams that would assemble things. Like we had a giant, uh, Tesla coil that would shoot like oh, wow. six foot sparks. So <laughs> I wasn't writing the story, but I was doing the, the lighting and special effects. That's cool. That's cool. Yeah. Hey, you know, jumping back to the the video game testing, uh -huh. um, I'm curious what that process is like because it sounds fun, but it also sounds like there's a lot of detail work. So, talk me through that. I mean, I'm assuming you're not just playing games; you're playing them and then, like, like taking notes on what works, what doesn't work. How does how does that process work? It's a great question, and and part of why. My friends and I assumed that the video game tester job would be a joke is because we assumed that that's basically all it would be is you'd just be playing games. And we also made some false assumptions of like that the game would be just like the game we play as a consumer, which is a finished game. Well, as a game tester, you're actually playing the game while it's still being built, which means, first of all, it's not finished. So a game that would normally take, you know, anywhere between uh, five to 50 hours to complete it, you know, when, as it's being built, there might only be 15 minutes of the game done. So you'll play the same 15 minutes, especially that first 15 minutes of the game, like a thousand times. The, 
then not only is it not complete, it's very, very broken in all sorts of different ways. So you'll play it, and even if, like, say, it starts out, there's only 15 minutes of it made, later on, now they've built five hours of the game, well, you may only get through 15 minutes of it because at 15 minutes, something breaks and you can't get any further until they get you a new version with a fix. Interesting. And not only that, you also, even if it appears to be working, your job as a tester is to actually come up with creative ways to break the game. So what, is, what have, does that mean? Uh, yeah, yeah, unpack that a little bit. What does that mean? So what what you will do, your instinct as a game player, you a lot of times is what it, what we will often refer to as playing the game as intended. So you'll you'll go along the paths that the game will tell you to go along, and you'll do things in the sequence that the game is telling you and giving you clues to do. And you will use items in the game as they were intended. So if, you know, I've given a shovel, I'm going to use that shovel to dig things out of the ground. But what you want to do as a game tester is, well, while some game players will do that, use the game as intended, there's a segment of the audience who will do exactly the opposite of that. They will, they will <laughs> use, try to do all sorts of wacky things with the game, do things out of order, do what, you know, quote unquote speed runs and speed runs will often consist of specifically doing things out of order so that you can complete the game faster. And so our job as testers was to kind of anticipate all of that play so that we could break the game so we could fix those things ahead of time so that if a user did do those unintended things, like say, use a shovel as a weapon or like get, pick up this item that like, hey, there's a, there's a magical crown hidden in the hollow of a tree that you get a clue for after 25 hours of gameplay. But guess what? If you know it's there, you can just pluck it out in the first five minutes. Well, what happens if you do that and then wear the crown around? <laughs> like for the first 20 hours of the game where you're not supposed to have that ground yet. Like what what happened? Like do the, do, do the characters, are the characters broken now because you're not supposed to have that yet? Like that kind of thing. So you are our second guest on the show that has a Guinness World Record status. Uh, Ultima Online was one of the longest, if not longest running MMO game in history and holds... I think eight Guinness World Records. I'm curious to know, in your opinion, why do you think it was so successful and what kinds of records does it exactly hold? Great question. And to be clear, uh, the game that I made, Ultima Online, is the Guinness World Record holder, not myself personally, although I would love to be <laughs> a, a Guinness World Record holder, but I, 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 don't wanna, I don't want the haters to come out and go, he claimed to be a... So Ultima <laughs> Online... Uh, it does hold several world records and mainly because of it being the first in so many categories. And so we have to like rewind to like state of the art and technology back when we released was, which is way back in the olden days of 1997. And up until that point, the most successful, most number of people who had been in an online game 
at any time had been like 30,000 people. And, you know, we, we hear that number now and we're like, oh, well, that's, that's, that's nothing. Like that's such a small number when like millions of people are playing like Fortnite, like every day. Uh, but again, from a scope standpoint, the biggest game up until then had ever been was like Air Warrior and had like 30,000 people. The other thing we have to, you have to remember is like, there were so many fundamental new things happening at this time. So we started development in 95, which is when the World Wide Web launched. So there were no such thing as web pages when we started development. The idea that people had usernames and passwords to things was not a commonplace thing for most people. The idea that you had a virtual home like that was in a online space was a new thing. Having a game where you paid a subscription and could access it for an unlimited amount of time was a new thing. So up until we launched, online gaming was paid for by the minute or the hour. And we were like the first online game to say, well, why not like to have a monthly subscription? And your time was unlimited. So the things that it held world record for uh, was it was the, I think it was the first online uh, experience to uh, hit more than 100,000 concurrent users. Uh, I think it was, it was the first, um, it was the first online game to have uh, player owned property in the world space. Like it wasn't instanced out. Uh, meaning that, like, yeah, what does that I'm, mean? Well, so when I'm running through the map, I see players' houses. They're not if off in some private area that you go to. They're they're actually in the world. So like when I if I run outside of the 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 capital Britain, I will start to see player owned buildings, player owned uh, properties, player owned businesses, uh, things like that, and. That was, uh, I think that was another one of the world records. I think it was, there was a world record related to a castle sold on eBay for $2,500. So it was the first, <laughs> like, uh, and this was, you know, in 97. So it was like the most valuable virtual good, good sold on a marketplace uh, ever uh, to up until that date. Um, so it was all these, basically all these bursts that had never happened prior to the creation and it's still running so it's the longest running commercial online game that uh we know of right now um you know so 25 plus years later you know we, we take online gaming for granted the way it works now as you yeah. said and when you started this game a lot of these ideas didn't exist so how did you transition both technologically and, and maybe more so creatively from traditional gaming as it was at that time to the online gaming experience. How did your team come up with these new ideas in this new space? Uh, it's a great question. We It was the, actually a convergence of a lot of things that were happening at the time that was the genesis of Ultima Online. Two big things were happening you know, as I mentioned, the the internet and the so there were already like online services like America Online and Genie and CompuServe, and those had 
those had games on them. And so the idea that you could play games online was a thing. So we weren't inventing that. Right. The feeling we were trying to capture was this social experience of paper gaming, of Dungeons and Dragons, where you and your friends are sitting at a table playing a game together. And at a fundamental level, games, historically, as far as we can tell, all the way back to like dice we found in like caves, is that games are a social experience. And like, if you even go like back to the arcade, you play, you went to the arcade with your friends and you played games and most of those games had a two-player option where you play competitively against or with each other, right? Um, right? Or even if it was sequential, right? Where you're competing on the score. But interestingly, computer games, uh, especially like role-playing games were very much a single-player experience for the f- most of the beginning of the history of computer games. And part of that was technological, but but interestingly, the mechanics they tried to recreate of Dungeons and Dragons were still social. So you you had your main character that you ran around with, but you often had non-player characters controlled by the computer that would travel with you, your party, which were just trying to recreate your friends playing with you, that social experience. And so really our pitch for Ultima Online was like, well, we're just trying to create that Dungeons and Dragons game with you and your friends. It just happens to be hundreds, if not thousands of people doing it all at the same time. So that was the genesis of the idea. At the same time, yes, there had been multiplayer games prior to this, but they had all relied on people connecting to these proprietary services like AOL or CompuServe or GD. It wasn't until Doom came along and it had multiplayer that you could play over the internet that people were like, oh, we can play these games over the internet with people all over the place. And that was for us a lot of big like, oh, right. Like we can do this not just confined to one of these services, but we can leverage the internet and you had big companies like AT&T really saying, hey, we can give people internet accounts, which again, prior to like 96, 97, wasn't even a thing. Like the only way anyone really accessed the internet was through one of these services. So that was a broad summary of some of the genesises. And then what was interesting though is when we wanted to make this all of us at the company were really single player game developers and so we actually brought in we hired in a, like three key people this guy named Raf Coster and and, and uh, his wife Kristen Coster and this guy Rick Delishment who had all worked in MUDs which are multi-user dungeons which are text-based versions of this graphical experience that we were building. So kind of transition to the game development part, you know, games include a tremendous amount of work, just not only the technology side, which you've talked about a little already, but also the storytelling side. I'm curious, what's the process of interweaving a storyline into a game? Does the gameplay come first or does the story usually come first? It's a great question. And it often depends on the 
game you are building. If it's a very narrative-driven game where the game, especially single-player games, where the game is about telling a specific story that's got a traditional, what I will say, a narrative structure, like where there is an introduction where you meet the characters, there's a climax where you know the you fight the the, the main bad guy, and then there's a conclusion. Those will often start with a story, even if it's just a broad outline. And then you will come up with the game around that. With that said, you don't often design a game without also knowing what kind of game you're going to build. Like, I'm going to build a strategy game, or I'm going to build a role-playing game, or I'm going to build a shooter. You almost always know the basic mechanics of gameplay at the same time, if not before your story. And then those will often kind of stair-step each other. Now, that's... uh, a snapshot of earlier days, it's kind of different now because we now have game engines. You know, we have these engines like Unity and Unreal where you have a lot of the game functionality that comes off the shelf with those engines. If you want to make a shooter, well, Unreal is basically a shooter already. So... You can just now say, well, I already have a shooter. Now let me write the story. For people who don't understand, because what do you mean by shooter? Oh, a shooter is a game that's mainly about shooting things. Like um, examples are like Call of Duty is what would be called a shooter. And like fundamentally, Fortnite is a shooter. So I want to pivot over to something um, currently that's going on with you. So you unveiled your new venture uh, gig stand at South by Southwest just this past year. Tell us what what is gig stand? Oh, great. Yes. So, well, it's actually tied to games, believe it or not. So my last game I worked on was a game called Shroud of the Avatar. And like we're sitting in our offices one day and Richard Garrett pops his head in and he's, and he says, um, this guy, uh, shooter, he's got, his name is shooter. And he tweeted me and he asked me if I could like do spoken word on his album. And, and I mean, and I said, do you mean shooter Jennings, Waylon Jennings son? He's like, oh yeah, yeah. That guy. And I'm like, yeah, you should do that. And so just to (laughs) give a And to give a little background on Richard Garriott, uh, the the guy I I worked with for many years on all these projects, Ultima Online and Shroud. So before there was Elon Musk, there was Richard Garriott as far as like eccentric millionaires doing crazy things. And what I mean by that is like Richard doing his haunted house, uh, Richard uh, deciding that his birthday party theme was going to be the Titanic. So everyone was going to eat on a floating barge out on the lake that while we were eating dinner would, would get struck and sink with all of us still on it. I, I um, heard those stories. The, the yeah. ship actually, actually sank, right? Uh, yeah, that's right. And then, <laughs> and Richard's history is, is, is 
his father was an astronaut. And Richard grew up like on the base in Houston where like all his neighbors either worked at NASA or were astronauts. And Richard just assumed, well, I'm going to be an astronaut when I grew up. But Richard grew up with not 2020 vision. And so the doctor was like, well, no, you don't get to be an astronaut. And Richard was like, well, that's, I won't, that's, I'm not going to take no for an answer. So Richard then became, you know, a famous video game designer like selling his first game in high school, made more money than his dad, who was an astronaut. And then fast forward to 30 years and became one of the first uh, paid astronauts to go up to the space station. And this all becomes important, believe me. <laughs> and so the, one of the reasons Shooter asked him to do spoken word on this album was the album was called uh, For Giorgio, or Do Kuntash for Giorgio. And it was a like a tribute to all these like baby songs Shooter had grown up hearing uh, that Giorgio Moroder had either written or participated in. Oh, that's Giorgio. so weird. We just we just mentioned him in another podcast because of the soundtrack to a Metropolis that he did. Oh, yeah, sure. So uh so there there was like never ending story, uh cat people, right. various songs like that on this on this album that Shooter did. Well, he wanted Richard to talk about like growing up in, you know, his career in the eighties, which is when Richard did his first games and then going into space and how all these were sort of tied. And I was like, Richard, you absolutely have to do this. It would be one, it would just be cool. I mean, how often do you get to be on an album with a famous, you know, that's going to actually, people are going to listen to because lots of people are on albums, but not, not many people get to be on albums that people listen to but it would be great promo for our game. So Richard does. Uh, meanwhile, Shooter, who lives in LA, the annual game convention, which is called E3, also happens in LA. And so I said, Shooter, we should all meet while we're in LA so we can meet you and get to know you and like, because we're doing this cool project together. We hit it off, it turns out, Shooter was a big nerd like all of us, had played our games, had written his own games. Waylon had brought bought him an apple. Like there's this there's this whole this awesome picture of like Waylon smoking a cigarette and Shooter as a kid with his his apple. So we even did like album release parties in the game. So like a <laughs> virtual, like, you know, and now again, like now that like, you know, uh Diplo and uh uh, uh, other uh, Travis Scott have done like concerts in Fortnite. Like, oh, we take, but this was like you know, eight years ago that we did these album release parties for Shooter. So then, uh, back to 2019, and Shooter and I became like really good friends, and like we would whenever I'd be in LA, I would see Shooter. Whenever Shooter was here in Austin, I would go to shows and we would hang out. And one of those times, Shooter said hey, I wish there was like this Uber for live music. And I was like, oh, well, tell me more. And and then he told me more about how it works, which I'll tell you in a second. And he was like, oh, but, you know, I just wish I could find, I just need to find somebody to like build it who like knows technology. And, I, and my response was like, you know that I literally build technology for a living, right? <laughs> like, like I'm like one of your best friends. Like, did you forget that? He's like, oh, right, let's, so we formed this company, and so that's how this got started. 
So that's a long winding road to how we got here and how it relates to games because Shooter is a big nerd and he likes our games and we're friends now. So the way it works is uh, you've taken an Uber or a Lyft, I assume. Sure. Or rented an Airbnb or bought something off eBay or back to Kickstarter. Right, right. right. Okay. So all of those are what are called marketplaces and they work on what's called demand mechanics. So you want a good and you go onto a marketplace and that good is either generated or provided based on demand. And that's the premise of Gigstan is that we make live music booking work based on demand. So uh, it's a marketplace for venues, artists, and fans where artists can start a campaign like a Kickstarter and they can say, hey, Shooter can say, hey, Austin, do you want to see me play the week of June 20th? The campaign starts, fans, stands. So the name of the app is Gig Stan for, and stands are super fans. It's from an Eminem song. Um, and it started out as a very dark term for super fans, but now it's like sort of the, the internet term for super fans. And you could say, I stan you, which means I like, I'm a very big fan of yours. Um, anyway, so gig and gig is like when you book a gig. Right. So gig stand. So the stands, the super fans start buying the tickets. Once the tickets hit certain numbers, the venues in that area will start getting notifications. Hey, Shooter's got a campaign in Austin the week of June 20th, and he sold 50 tickets or 100 tickets. And then those venues can look at that week, look at June 20th, and they could say, oh, well, I've got a slot on June 21st at 8.30, or I've got a slot on Friday the 25th at uh, midnight. And then Shooter can review those bids, pick the winning bid, and then everybody's ticket updates with the date and time of the venue. And what it does is traditional booking works that I book a show with an artist in a venue, and I hope that I sell the tickets. And there's a lot of risk involved. And that's in, in traditional booking, there's some mechanics to help offset that. There's like what were called guarantees. Basically, as the promoter or the venue, you tell the artist, well, no matter how many tickets we sell, I'm going to pay you a minimum amount. Well, the unintended or intended side effect of that is newer artists or artists without representation have a really hard time booking checks or even medium-sized artists have a hard time booking shows because they're the whole system is very risk averse but our system basically says well there's no risk because you don't book the show until the tickets are sold and you can book the show to the right size room because you know exactly how many tickets are already sold and or are going to sell based on the sales trend so that's how, basically how the whole thing works. So Gigstain is like a three-sided marketplace. You have artists, fans, and venues. How would one side interact with another on the platform, whether it be artists to venues, fans to venues, uh, and so forth? And, and and is there an order? I guess it's artist-driven first? Uh, in the 
In this first current version, yes. But uh, so I answer Andrew's question, then I answer your question. So sure. uh, the way it works is there's we kind of modeled it after Uber and Lyft. There's two apps. There's the fan app. Um, this is the app that you as a consumer like when Uber you would use. Um, and then there's the pro app for the venues and the artists. So from an order of operations, the way it works is we get artists and venues to sign up and build a profile. And an artist in a profile has like their picture, a description of who they are, their name, and links to all of their sound, their music. So whether it's Apple Music or SoundCloud or Bandcamp, wherever they have music posted, uh, and all their social media. So their 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 Instagram, their their TikTok, their uh, Twitter feed, wherever it is they do post to social media. Um, it also has all of their like, what are my tech requirements when I play? Like like you know how many mics do I need? Um, what what kind of amps are required, et cetera. On the venue side, um, they do a similar thing. They post a picture, they post their address, they post their capacity, like how many people they can hold, uh, genres that play at their venue, um, links to whatever social media they have and their website, um, and then also their permits, like their permits to host live music. Um, and then also we get the the venues and the artists to give us their W-9s because we'll we'll handle all their taxes and their fund distribution for them. Once a artist starts a campaign, and right now it's just artists that can start a campaign, as soon as they start a campaign, fans get notified, hey, there's a new campaign uh, in your area. And so I'm curious, like from a fan uh, yeah. standpoint, if I sign up as a fan, I can, I'm assuming I can follow a particular band and find out, you know, when they're going to be playing and so forth. Do I also get pinged with with similar bands that I might not be aware of that'll say, "Hey, you know, you might you like you like this guy, you might like this one, you like this band, you might like this band." Does it work like that as well? Or yes, eventually. So we've had a bunch of test shows, and we just had our first uh, show with paid tickets at South by Southwest, which went great. There was this artist, Hellbound Glory, who hadn't played Austin in like fifteen years. And uh, Shooter produced his last album. And so we were like, okay, this will be a great test because he hasn't played in a while. Um, he he has some dedicated, he has a dedicated fan base. Um, he's active on social. So let's see what happens. So he put out the campaign. The fans got, you know, people got notified. We made some posts on social. We sold a bunch of tickets. And then Saxon, we got Saxon Pub to sign up as a venue. We got them to bid on the show. And then we ended up selling out the show. Now, all the things you describe of being able to follow and get discovery and things like that, those will all happen once we have like a critical mass of artists and venues. Right now, we're in the process of getting artists and venues to sign up to fill that marketplace with shows. But like gotcha. for right now, we've only had like one show and then we've got a, 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 a bunch more in the works that are going to happen like over like August, September time. So yes, the the short answer is yes, all those discovery things will happen. But right now there's not enough artists or venues to make that that meaningful in the near term. So I have a little bit of a two-parter. One, where can listeners learn more about GigStand, whether it be just downloading the app or and if so, if they're interested to kind of see where it's going to go, what could you tell us, you know, what the 
kind of outlook is will be like in maybe a year or two? Great question. So our website is gigstan.com, G-I-G-S-T-A-N.com. And that that gives you a little intro about what how the app works, and then you can that's got links to download the app as well, uh, and it's got links for the fans, and there's also sections of the website for artists and venues where you can download the pro app, and we talk about how that works as well. So that's how you can learn more if you want to sign up as an artist or a venue. Uh, there's also a contact on there too, so. You can certainly download the app and start building a profile, but if you have specific questions for us on that part of it, feel free to hit that contact button on the website and we will set up a time to walk you through the process. And then where we hope to be in the next uh, few months and by South by next year is we hope to have you know tons of artists and venues in the marketplace and having campaigns running not just in Austin but in Texas as a whole and also a few other places like California, Washington, Tennessee, Louisiana. So we're also working on expanding to those marketplaces as well. There's a bunch of things that we want to be able to support. Examples include you're booking a tour and you've got a few dates booked but you want to fill in the gaps. So we need to be in more marketplaces than just like Austin. So we're going to aggressively pursue being in places so that we can help people tour around. Uh, so artists, both artists coming to Texas and they want to do like a mini tour around, you know, not just hit Austin, but also make it worth coming all this way if they're not from here. So we could have venues set up for them in, you know, San Antonio and Houston, Dallas and yeah, also have venues on the West Coast for artists from Texas going out to the West Coast and same with the East Coast. And uh, things that we are working on right now is right now the campaigns are based on a single artist, but we've got a feature that we're working on right now where two artists that are running campaigns that are near each other could merge their campaigns together so you could have a headliner or an opener. Oh, that's cool. Things like that. Yeah. So if you... If you see two campaigns running, that we will let you merge those together and or you could invite another artist that's in the app to just run the campaign with you from the start. That's really cool. That's really yeah. cool. Yeah. And even longer term, we want to do things like having smart routing and smart merging. So like if you say, hey, I want to do a tour that starts in Austin and ends in L.A., just automatically generate a bunch of campaigns between here and there and also automatically suggest those merges along the way. So if you spin up a bunch of campaigns in that route, if it sees, hey, you have a campaign the week of June 20th in San Antonio, there's another band, same genre as you, that's also running a campaign. You both sold 50 tickets. You should merge. And so make those suggestions. So again, where can uh, listeners find out about Gigstan? What's the website again? Gigstan, G-I-G-S-T-A-N.com. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Star, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Gigstan sounds like an amazing new app. And 
based on your history, I'm sure it's going to be a huge success. <laughs> so congratulations on that. <laughs> and for all of you listening, definitely keep an eye on the GigStand website. Uh, they are adding shows constantly, and in the next few weeks, they will have upcoming shows from Justin Wells, Brian Schwood, and Justin Robert Young. Star, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you, and the best of luck on this new venture. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Filmmaker Mixer Podcast, a podcast created and hosted by filmmakers Jeff Stolen and Andrew Lamping and produced by Jeff Weber. Our theme music is by the man, the myth, the legend, Stephen D. Bennett. Make sure to follow or subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to us on and stay tuned for future episodes. Thank you.